Welcome, everyone. I'm Guy Hazelman, the host of MIM Cuts to the Chase. Our guest today is David Richter, Asia strategist for MetLife Investment Management. David is joining us from Tokyo, and today he will help provide us with some clarity around the many policy changes happening in China. And given the looming National Party Congress meeting, I find the timing for our conversation to be particularly fortunate. Welcome, David. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, David, before I transition into a question, I thought it would be helpful for our listeners if I offered an overview to help with context and to foreshadow where I would like to go with our conversation. So here's how I see it. In the 1970s, Deng Xiaoping enters the picture and tries to address widespread impoverishment by shifting to a less centralized economy and implementing a new economic regime based on exports. Over the ensuing decades, China quite clearly became a transformative economic force. And to put that into perspective, according to the World Bank, China's share of global GDP rose from about one and a quarter percent in 1990 to about 18 and a half percent of global GDP in 2021. That is certainly 30 years of spectacular growth. Today, however, growth is being hampered by many years of their reliance on debt to fuel that growth. Overall debt in China in 2021, according to many sources, was around 270% of GDP. Xi Jinping has publicly stated his desire to reduce debt and the economic inequality that has resulted. Intertwined with all this is the vagaries around Chinese real estate market and their restrictive COVID response policies. So that's the setup. Uh, David, it's great to speak with you today as there is clearly much for us to untangle. So let's get to it. Uh, It seems to me that the trick for Mr. Xi will be how Beijing balances the trade-offs between its longer-term de-risking goals and its desire for economic stabilization. If you would start by talking about those opposing endeavors, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, And and thanks again for for having me, Guy. Um, I I think that was a nice summary of the current situation uh, and the challenges China's facing. I I think a lot of the big policy shifts that have occurred over the past 18 months under Xi Jinping are are based on on a desire, his his stated desire to make China's economy stronger, more competitive over the longer run, as as well as more equitable for, for the Chinese people. Hence, the, the common prosperity slogan that we keep hearing about. Now, to get there, China's economic model has shifted. It's shifted away from maximizing growth at all costs to, to something that's more balanced, you know, higher quality um, growth that's more sustainable for, for the longer run. Now, uh, you know, in our view, the, the pro-growth strategy has, has been good for a lot of things in the last two or three decades, but it's also led to a massive stockpile of debt, as you mentioned, as well as uh, lots of social inequality and, and, and a host of environmental problems. And so now we have this new policy framework that's emerging, which is trying to address key issues. 
improving uh, income distribution, supporting households, you know, easing their housing, education, healthcare costs, promoting cleaner energy, enhancing national security is another one, uh, given all the trade and, and tech tensions that, that we've seen with the U.S. and increasingly its allies. So you got all that happening, and, and at the same time, uh, Beijing's trying to move the economy away from exports, you know, away from uh, credit-driven investment to, to new engines of growth, which, uh, you know, things like consumption and services, um, higher value-added manufacturing, high-tech and whatnot, you know, all these things that you would expect to see in, in a maturing economy, greener industries as, as Beijing tries to decarbonize um, the economy, for example. Can you tell us more about how these policy shifts by Xi Jinping are tied to also to his desire to maintain political stability leading up to the 20th National Congress in November and how those shared prosperity policies tie in with that in this and his new economic structure? Just tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So I I think the the way to, to sum that up would be to say that this Common Prosperity Initiative is basically Xi Jinping's response to uh, the, the widespread anxieties in Chinese society about the income inequality that I mentioned. You know, that's a social ill that he wants China to overcome. And this is really a key initiative that he wants to build his legacy on as a way to preserve and, and enhance the legitimacy and power of the Communist Party. You know, there's a belief that the party's ability to maintain unchallenged political control will ultimately depend on its ability uh, to meet what Xi Jinping says is uh, the people's demand for for a happier life, quote unquote. And so the political and strategic importance of this policy regime shift, I think, should not be underestimated, especially in the run-up to the 20th Party Congress in November, you know, which is a major milestone, by the way, once in every five years. But this one being particularly important for Xi Jinping, as we'll, we'll see him get a, a third term. And so, you know, I, to answer your question, I think there are a lot of things going on in China right now. Beijing is clearly moving away from this old model of, of boosting growth at all costs to something that is more calibrated and, and in tune with the, the longer term political and economic goals of the Communist Party. And, you know, all of this suggests at the end of the day that there will be a higher tolerance for lower growth going forward, and thus the lagged policy response that we saw last year. And by lagged policy response, I assume you mean the slow response to slower economic growth, as you mentioned, which was caused by the wobble in real estate last year. It it might have been lagged, but the PBOC certainly took notice earlier this year by cutting its key interest rates and its reserve requirement. So let's turn to the property sector, which I believe is around 30% of GDP. So it's a huge chunk. I'd love to hear your outlook and the impact you believe it will play on the broader economy going forward. Yeah. You know, I think, unfortunately, there's more pain to come. It hasn't bottomed yet. Demand remains weak. Sales contracted an average 22% year over year. In January, February, we saw that this week, uh, data coming out. You know, I believe we're likely to get a similar magnitude of contraction in the next couple of months. And all the key indicators, whether it's property sales, 
uh, new housing starts, real estate investment, they've all declined for nine to 10 consecutive months now. We've seen local governments stepping up efforts to, to support housing demand, but they've been relatively piecemeal and, and certainly not enough to turn sentiment around just yet. So if you go back to previous downturns, we know that it's typically taken three to six quarters, four quarters on average for property sales to go from peak to trough. For this down cycle, sales peaked in the first quarter of 2021. They turned negative in the third quarter. And so we penciled in a contraction for the current quarter, 25% year-over-year contraction, a little bit less than the second quarter, and then some semblance of a recovery in the second half of this year as more policy support kicks in, credit easing, improvement in liquidity for property developers, you know, all these things sort of helped to to lift um, household sentiment somewhat. Now, because real estate investment has typically lagged property sales by a quarter, it's it's highly doubtful that it can provide any lift to, to growth this year. In fact, we'll probably get a drag from that. So the broader implication of all this is that we're looking at continued strong headwinds for uh, overall GDP growth uh, coming from the property sector this year. But since it's, again, such a sensitive political year with, with the upcoming party Congress in November, we'd expect Beijing to provide just enough support to sort of oversee a modest recovery this year, just as the property slowdown has largely been policy-induced you know, over the last 12, 18 months. We do think that the recovery into the latter half of the year will be policy-supported. So a bit of a a reversal of policy. At the end of the day, the property sector is is too big to fail. He says, you know, 30% of the economy, while macro, financial, social stability, you know, all these things are top priorities for for Beijing, again, especially in this sensitive political year. Yeah, I think the Goldilocks economy for the time being um, is probably a good bet, given that Beijing is very good at pulling the necessary levers to kind of get the outcome that they want. However, I've spoken to some people who are a bit spooked by the regulatory reset last year, and they question, and maybe this is extreme, but I will paraphrase them, they question whether China is still investable. You know, I think they should be cautious in drawing that conclusion. It's true that we did see this regulatory reset, regulatory storm, it's been called a lot of things, certainly has been quite broad-based, touching on many parts of the economy and and various businesses, property developers, internet platforms, fintech, you know, quite a long list. But by and large, the majority of the private sector hasn't been affected by the regulatory clampdown, in our view. And that's important because the private sector is a key driver of growth in China. The bulk of investment, about 60%, continues to be done by the private sector. And when you look at some of the businesses and sectors that that have been targeted, they they don't actually account for that much of GDP. The largest sector that was targeted, internet platforms, for example, contributed just 7% of of total uh, revenue of China's top 500 companies last year, or about 3 3 or 4% of GDP. But yes, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that some sectors are going to be safer than others going forward, and, and so investors will have to pick and choose carefully. Certainly, any sector that underpins and, and helps Beijing achieve its longer-term political, economic, strategic goals uh, will surely be more favored and, and less, less risky uh, going forward. 
Yeah, that's a good point. That makes sense. Let's change directions a bit. And I almost feel fatigued talking about the pandemic. But I do find China's zero COVID policy to be fascinating. It's amazing to me how one positive case can completely close off a busy port or a city of 10 million people. And I suspect this policy has added to global supply chain pressures. Do you believe Beijing will stick with this policy? And what kind of impact is this policy actually having? Yeah, I think I think they will stick to zero COVID policies um, until they develop their own effective mRNA vaccine. Um, I think that that's sort of the bottom line. They may do away with some of the more stringent controls that are in place in, in certain local jurisdictions where, where feasible, but, but in our view, it's, it's hard to see a full reversal of these policies happening, I think, until they can roll out an effective mRNA vaccine on a large scale. Now, they have one in phase three clinical trials, so, so they're getting there, but hard to see the government doing away with the policy altogether, giving risks to, to the health system. And we also think China is still a long way from reopening borders for, you know, for normal travel in and out of the country. Now, that said, you know, we need to acknowledge that, that the policy has been very effective in limiting uh, cases and, and deaths you know, compared to the rest of the world. It's just that all the reduced exposure that's come with zero COVID means that China is still some way from reaching herd immunity right, in, in, in the general population, which is why it's working so hard on, a, on an mRNA vaccine. Now, in terms of the impact for your question uh, that, that the zero COVID policies are having on the broader economy, I would say they're quite significant. You know, policies have disrupted household consumption and, and the services sector. A lot more last year, uh, maybe not as much as time goes on, but there has been major disruption. The services sector is, you know, has a bigger weight in the overall GDP uh, than industry, and it employs a lot more people. It's clearly been one of the biggest uh, headwinds for, for the economy in recent quarters, and it continues to delay the, the, the consumption and, and services sector recovery that, that everyone's been waiting for. Now, on the other hand, contrary to what what I think some people may assume, you know, the zero COVID policies haven't had that much of an impact on on China's domestic supply chains in, in recent quarters. At the outset, back in 2020, yes, there was definitely more disruption, but by and large, not so bad. It's had more to do with logistics bottlenecks of shipping goods from Asia to, to key export markets such as the U.S., I think uh, much more so than any you know, major supply chain disruptions within China. So, David, uh, you, you've touched on how Beijing is willing to accept slower GDP growth, and, um, but not too slow. And your forecast for GDP this year is actually pretty decent. But it seems to me that many of the changes to official policies and Xi Jinping's initiatives, they just seem to me to be significant economic headwinds. So have policy biases shifted? How do you expect this to play out? We know that it took some time for easing, you know, easier policy to kick in last year. Um, it eventually materialized around October. Right? The market was sitting around for quite a, 
quite a few months thinking, when, when are we going to get more easing? So we got the easing. We've seen that easier policy bias sort of persist up to the present. Cuts in triple R, as you mentioned, short-term interest rates, uh, front-loaded local government bond issuance this year to, to support infrastructure spending, a host of property support measures in, in local jurisdictions, to name a few. But in terms of your question, I do think there's more easing to come, you know, particularly given all the uncertainties around the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which obviously has downside risk for growth, particularly in Europe, you know, which is a key export market for, for China. About 18% of exports go to Europe. Uh, and unfortunately, this is happening at a time when China's broader export growth was already expected to, to slow coming into the new year and, you know, in the quarters ahead. And of course, as, as you know, you just talked about it, the domestic economy continues to face various headwinds given the property sector and you know, the still weak consumption and services sector activity and, and whatnot. So net-net, I think the easing bias will continue and, and it will likely be further reinforced at the NPC meeting coming up. But I think the bottom line here is that China's policymakers are very practical. And despite all the longer-term economic and, and political goals and policy resets that, that you know, we've talked about, they will provide sufficient policy support to oversee a modest recovery in the second half of the year, which is why we're forecasting 5.1% GDP growth this year, with an average of 4 and 6% growth in the first and second halves, respectively. Any final thought that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, yeah, well, you know, we think that in the longer run, as, as Xi Jinping further consolidates his power, the policy-making process is likely to become a lot more complex. You know, we've heard about all these, talked about all the new economic, political, social goals that, that have emerged. The policy framework has evolved really quickly. And against that backdrop, there's likely to be um, greater potential for, for policy missteps that could increase risks for China's economy and by extension, the global economy as well. And so we'll be looking at that a little more closely in coming months. We'll, we'll likely publish some research on that. Well, I certainly look forward to reading that paper. Thank you again for taking your time to share your interesting thoughts and insights. I hope to have you back. My pleasure, Guy. Thanks for having me. It is not MetLife Investment Management's intention to provide, and you may not rely on this podcast as providing, a recommendation with respect to any particular investment strategy or investment. The information and opinions presented or contained in this podcast are provided as of the date it was published.